Exodus is about rescue and about relationship. And while we realize that this book was written by a people long ago and far away to a people long ago and far away, we also believe that these are God's words, God's voice speaking to us across time, across generations, here and now, given to us, as the Scriptures say, to guide us, to give us encouragement, and to give us hope. And it does it in a very specific way this morning, because these words before us in the second chapter of Exodus are going to address one of the most difficult questions that will come up in our lives. So it's, it's a universal question. It's a question that really stretches across cultures and across all generations, but it is also a very deeply personal question that every one of us must and does face. And the question is simply, where is God in our pain and in our suffering? Pain and suffering and confusion and loss are all a part of life in this world. And we have seen that very powerfully in the events that have unfolded over this past week. But also, every one of us personally feels this tension in our lives. The reality of pain, of suffering, of loss, of fear and sadness and confusion and weakness. And what we're going to see this morning is not a God who is distant and disconnected, but a God who fully immerses Himself and enters into the pain and suffering that His people feel. And we're going to see this in four very specific ways in our texts. When His people find themselves trapped in their own pain and suffering, God sees, God hears, God remembers, and God acts. And that is good. That is very good news for us here and now. But before we start, just a quick word. Uh, I realize that I am spending most of my time and our focus and attention today on the last three verses in this long passage. And, and I'm not ignoring Moses and his origin story. We're going to talk more about that as the weeks unfold. Moses is clearly going to be very important to what is happening here in the book of Exodus. But what is also clear moving forward and even in our passage today is that Moses cannot deliver God's people. Only God is able to deliver God's people. Even today, this morning, we're going to see Moses trying his best only to end in failure. And what that leaves us is with this sense of need of if we are going to be rescued, God has got to do it. God has got to do something that we ourselves cannot do on our own. And that is just what we're given. We're given a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who remembers, and a God who acts. So first, God sees. Frederick Buechner once wrote that if we are to love our neighbors before anything else, we must first see our neighbors. 
There is a very real connection between our ability to love those around us and our ability to see what's going on in their lives. This past Thursday, the world woke up to a Russian assault on the people of Ukraine. And while none of us can say exactly what it's like to be in their shoes, uh, one of the things we have in modern warfare in a modern world is we have images that are processed and transmitted immediately around the world. And, and I don't know if you, there's been many that have put out, but there's one in particular of an older woman in bandages, bleeding, and you can just see the fear, the despair on her face. We don't know her name. We don't know her story, but the pain is obvious. It's there. And, and what that picture does is it bridges a gap a nearly 6,000-mile gap between us and their suffering, enabling us here and now to see just a glimpse of some of what is going on all the way around the world. We're, we're only in chapter 2 of Exodus, but we have already seen that the situation is desperate. So God's people are far away from home. They are oppressed. They are enslaved. They're said to be trapped in bitter service. They are far outnumbered and they are powerless against the forces that are pushing down and pushing against them. And they are even at this point experiencing violence at the most vulnerable among them, their own children. For them, things have gotten far, far out of hand. The pain and suffering is very real. And the question naturally is, does God really see what's happening? And the answer we're given is clear in verse 25. God saw the people of Israel. And this is expanded in the next chapter. If we're going to look a little bit ahead in Exodus 3, here's what God says. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them, and I know their suffering. It's not like us who are seeing events unfold halfway around the world in small pictures. It's more like the reporter who is there on the ground seeing up close and personal. When it comes to pain and suffering, God is there. Immersed in fullness. God sees not from a distance. All that, all that you are going through, every fear, every sigh, every tear, every physical ache, every relational hurt, every longing, every loss, every disappointment, He knows how it feels as if He was living in your own skin. And He feels it with you. He sees all of our pain and suffering, and that is good news. But it's only the first step in this God's loving engagement with His people. Which brings us to our second point. God not only sees, but He also hears. So shortly after our oldest son turned one, he fell awkwardly and he broke his femur, which is basically the bone that connects your hip 
to your knee. It's the biggest bone in your body, which means that it's the most painful for you to break. And so when we took him to the doctor and they said that he needed a cast, uh, immediately there was this sense of intense dread that, that kicked in as new parents not sure of what this would mean for us. And, and then when he came out of the, the operating room, our sense of dread just skyrocketed and broke through the roof when, when we found that he was in what's called a spica cast, which basically means they, uh, it's not just a leg going from here to here. It starts up here, kind of near your chest. It goes all the way down to your ankle on one leg, and then it goes all the way down to your knee on the other leg. So you're kind of stuck in this like motorcycle-like position. And he would be trapped in this shell, really trapped for 40 days. Um, so no walking, no crawling, no sitting up on your own for 40 days. And remember, he, he's at this age where it's just after one where um, he can't talk, can't process. And so his ability to communicate to us what he is feeling, his own fears, his own worries, his own concerns is not happening at all. And our ability to try to communicate, this is why you are in this cast. This is why you are trapped. This is, this is why we are allowing as your parents this thing to happen. None of that kind of communication is happening. And one way to describe his experience and ours is by the word groaning. And these are, ni- these are nights of literal groaning by a child who's not able to understand what's happening and why, who's in pain, and by parents who are tired, who are confused in their own way. When you think about what groaning is, groaning is really this strange mixture of pain and longing. Pain says, this is hard. Uh, this is really hard. And longing says, I want to be out of this. I want something different. I want to be set free. And, and groaning often happens at such a deep level where we're not able to express it in words. When we say that, that God not only sees but hears, what is it that he hears from his people? Verse 23. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out, for help, and their cry for rescue came up to God, and God heard their groaning. What we see in God's people is pain. Uh, this is hard. This is really hard. And what we see in God's people is longing, longing to be set free. But this condition of groaning is not just limited to this people at this time. Think about what was read in our New Testament lesson in this letter to the Romans. All creation is groaning like a woman in labor, groaning in pain and longing for something better. And Paul says, not only all creation's groaning, but we ourselves are groaning, who have God's Spirit inside of us. We groan inwardly as we wait. We all know this experience of pain, of hardship, and of longing and of ache. Groaning. God not only sees the real pain and suffering of His people, but He enters in. It says that His Spirit, and I wish I would have included this because it's the next verses in the Romans passage. But the Spirit is said to help us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for like we ought. But the Spirit inside of us, do you know what the Spirit's doing? The Spirit is said to be praying inside of us with groanings 
that are too deep for words. God's heart groaning inside of us for our good. Him feeling, Him immersing Himself in our condition. He hears our groanings and our cries for help. It is a love that sees and it is a love that hears, that is immersed in it with us. But what does God do with what He sees and with what He hears? And this brings us to our third point, God remembers. So over the Christmas holidays, uh, like many of you, we watched the movie Home Alone together as a family. And in the beginning, you know, there's this crazy rush because there's this crazy family and everybody's uh, doing all they can last minute uh, to get out the door, to get to the airport, to get through the airport, to make it on their flight. And, and they get there on the flight and there's a scene where the mom's kind of sitting on the plane and she's just unsettled. She can't sleep. She thinks she's forgotten something. And they go through this long list of things. Did we turn the coffee maker off? Uh, did we lock the doors? Did we close the garage doors? And it's like, no, 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 no. And then she realizes, you all know the scene. She, uh, she realizes that they've, lost their, they've left their son at home. And now he's home all alone. And, and I love it when the husband comes alongside to try to comfort her by saying, well, we didn't, we didn't really forget him. We just miscounted. <laughs> Which, as you can imagine, in, in that moment, it's probably not the most comforting thing to say. Uh, when it says that God remembers, it's, it's not like God is busy with all sorts of these other responsibilities that, that God has to be doing to keep his universe uh, running on time. And he, he's so busy that he loses track of, of what's happening with his people. And all of a sudden he, he slows down and he remembers and he looks and it's like, what are, you, what are you doing in slavery? How did you get there? What's going on here? When it comes to our own experience of pain and suffering, sometimes that is our experience of what it feels like. It feels like God is off doing something very important. Oh, yes, he's very attentive, just not here. Because if he was attentive here, then this would not be happening. We see this struggling in a beautiful way in the Psalms, where, where this reality of, of faith in a fallen world just collide and intermingle. Where David himself cries out, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide from me? How long am I going to wrestle with my thoughts and have sorrow in my heart day after day? How long is that going to be my reality? Why have you forgotten me? When it says God remembers in verse 24, what's happening there? The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help and God heard their groaning and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God's remembering is not a sudden recollection of things that He has forgotten. God's remembering is His holding true to His promises that He has made to His people. So, Tomorrow, Katie and I will celebrate 18 years of marriage, uh, which means that 18 years ago, we uh, stood up before family, before friends, before God, and we made promises to one another, promises to love and serve for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health until we are parted by death. 
What we have in God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. But when God talks about His promises, the language He uses for His biggest and most foundational promises is covenants. We don't talk much about covenants, but in that culture, covenants were a big deal. Covenants were this bond between two parties. And God's covenant promise that He made long ago to Abraham and reaffirmed it to His sons and is saying, I'm still holding true to this, is His promise to be their God and to be extraordinarily good to them. And through His goodness to them, the whole world would experience God's goodness. Now, humanity has a very, very poor track record of keeping our promises. God has a perfect, pristine record of keeping His promises. So when God says that He remembers His promise, that is a very good thing. We're, we're sensing this buildup of God's not just looking on from a distance saying, that's hard. He's not just hearing our prayers up close and saying, that's hard. We're seeing this movement into it to say, I'm going to do something about this. Which brings us to our final and fourth point, God acts. Our passage ends with these words. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. It's a Hebrew way of saying God knew now is the time. Now is the time to act. Now is the time to fulfill what I have promised so long ago. And we do see this at the beginning of God's acting in the birth of this little baby boy. And there are a few clues in this text that tell us that something new and something big is happening in the birth of this child. And I hope to come back to those in the future weeks. But as this new work is rising, we run into a snag very quickly. Moses goes out among his people and some of the same language is used. Moses sees their burdens. He sees their pain, their suffering. And then what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. Maybe he's the one who's going to rescue God's people out of slavery. And, and what it reaches is a dead end. He kills an Egyptian. He's rejected by his own people. And he goes into exile for years. Now Moses' story is far, far from over. He's going to play a big role ahead. But this much is clear. The, the kind of rescue they need has to take a form that is so much bigger, so much stronger, so much better than Moses. The people need something more. That's why we read in the next chapter, we're, we're looking a little bit ahead into to next week in chapter 3, where God says these words, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them and to bring them out of that land and into a place of great abundance. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what it looks like for God to come down in this way. For God to begin to bring His people out of this place and bring them into something so much better. But when we think about our story and how we fit into this, what, what's what we're going to see as we read through the rest of Scripture is that 
God's people needed an even greater deliverance than out of Egypt and out of this slaver to these forces. God's people needed something that could combat these enemies of sin, of evil, and of death. And that is what the gift of Jesus is all about. That is what the incarnation is about, of God coming amongst us, and that is what the death and resurrection of the Son of God is all about. About God coming toe-to-toe against sin, against death, against evil, and saying, you will not have the final word against my people. And his battle, his victory is going to come at such a great cost to himself to take all that weight upon him on his own very shoulders. I want to close with a little bit of just a short story. As we think about our own lives, uh, as we think about this tension and this gap that exists between the reality of our pain and suffering and the reality of God who sees and a God who hears and a God who remembers and a God who acts. And it takes us back into the 1800s into a man named Horatio Spafford. He was an incredibly successful lawyer. He owned a number of properties in the Chicago area, which is one of the reasons why the Chicago fire in 1871 was so devastating for him. He and his family lost everything. And it's not like losing everything nowadays where there's all sorts of different safety nets that you have. Uh, Losing everything then meant you really lost everything and you really had to start over. Uh, Think about the devastation, the loss, the fear, the insecurity, what you're experiencing then. After having worked through that years later, he would send his family overseas to to Europe. They were being a part of, of some Christian work that was going on overseas. And so he sent his family ahead. He needed to to, to work on some things uh, business-wise. So his, his wife and his four daughters uh, went on this boat. Annie, who was 12. Uh, Maggie, uh, 7. Another little girl who was 4. And then another even smaller, 18 months. And he, he gets the, the, a telegram from his, his wife that um, says, Saved alone, uh, what shall I do? And he hears news that basically the ship has sunk and only his wife out of his four daughters has survived. Um, you talk about devastation. You talk about loss. You talk about like pain and suffering and sadness and being at your wits end to see uh, such life lost. Um, he gets on a boat and he travels over them. And when, he, when he, he, he gets near to where the boat is said to sank, he, he wrote a song. I don't think I would have written a song in that setting. But he wrote a song, and some of it goes like this. When, when peace like a river attends my way, and when sorrows and sea billows roll, whatever my lot you've taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Um, those are the words that we're actually going to sing next. And they remind us, they don't answer uh, all of our questions, but it reminds us that in the midst of our pain and suffering, that we do have a God who sees, we have a God who hears, we have a God who remembers, and we have a God who acts. And that is seen most clearly in Jesus and his death for us. Let's pray.
Uh, Our Father, we uh, come to you weak and we come to you needy. We come to you with little faith and um, with big questions. And we pray that you would meet us. Um, There are so many different stories in this room. Each person here has their own story of loss and confusion and wrestling. And would you please... Uh, remind us and show us that you are the God who is with us and for us in all things. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.